Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Die Living Podcast, sponsored as always by Softleet. Today we are recording a very special episode. Uh, it's the re-recording of the first podcast episode that we ever recorded. I feel like that's a lot of recordings for one sentence, but uh, the original Softleet podcast was recorded in a farmhouse at the kitchen table with I think ten of us using four microphones. And the content was good, but the recording was pretty shitty. So <clears throat> as we've stepped up our quality game here, we ultimately removed that from the podcast feed. And when we did that, we got a lot of responses from people asking for us to put it back. Um, I was actually surprised at how how many people said not only did they want to listen to it because they had been referred to it by friends, um, but as well, how many people asked to have it back because they had listened to it more than once and it was something that they continued to go back to. So <clears throat> with that, we are going to essentially have that same conversation again today. And we have some very distinguished guests with us, which I think is going to make the conversation even better. It'll be more adult at least. Yes. Um, <laughs> to give the background of what we're talking about, um, <clears throat> basically the, the theme of the first podcast was sociopathic tendencies. And that conversation had basically come out of the original softly crew was basically um, a bunch of soft guys and then myself coming from like a Wall Street background. And one of the things that Brent, our CEO, had mentioned a number of times when he'd come to visit me back in the Wall Street days was how much the trading desk felt like being in a team room to him. Um, and it was something that he found very striking and that led to a lot of conversation about what types of personalities succeed in each one of those jobs, uh, and why. And <clears throat> a lot of the things that he would hear me talk about when I would be telling stories about my former career and things that I would hear him talk about when he was telling stories about his former career sounded really, um, the context was obviously significantly different, um, but the theme sounded really similar. So with that, we decided to have that conversation and we're gonna, as mentioned, recreate that conversation today. Uh, Brent won't be joining us today, but we do have Mr. Doug Keyswetter, who is- I am the resident child in this conversation. That's right. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, a standard here at Softleet. Also joining us is Worth Parker, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, United States Marine Corps, Marine Raider. Appreciate you being here. Also, John Daly, uh, retired MARSOC Marine, one of the original Marine Corps SOCOM guys, and also serving on uh, the board of the Raider Association currently, uh, as well as Paul Benaviste. Uh, I hope I'm am I pronouncing that correctly. You were in the ballpark. All right. Paul <laughs> Benaviste. Benveniste. Benveniste. Damn it. 
I gotta get better at this name thing. Um, I gotta start writing things out. One uh, of the requirements, like phonetically, yeah. one of the requirements of hosting the podcast yeah. is being able to pronounce all ethnic names. I know, you know. I'm like, yeah. Anyway, um, I'm sorry, Paul. I, I hate starting podcasts with apologies, but. Paul is a clinical psychologist, uh, previously was at MARSOC and is currently at USASOC. So we have, uh, I think, pretty awesome guest list. Appreciate you guys coming to join us today for this conversation. Um, and I think that one of the ways I'd like to kick it off is by asking Paul if you can kind of give us a definition of, like, what is a sociopath? How does that differ if any way from like a psychopath or you know when, when we talk about this term what does that mean just a slight disclaimer uh, before we start sure. the views that i represent are not those of the department of defense the army fort bragg the jfk school of warfare and depending on how it goes i may even deny that they're my views <laughs> fair, fair enough <laughs> um my perspective ultimately is a medical one and I, I don't I don't think that outside of a medical setting, diagnoses are really relevant right. without having um, sat down and worked with someone, interviewed someone. It's just not appropriate to be giving diagnoses. Sure. There are a lot of terms from psychiatry that have filtered their way down into the common language, mm -hmm. and sociopath is certainly one of them. Right. Um, it has filtered its way down from a diagnosis that's known as antisocial personality disorder. Mm -hmm. um, we can talk about personality types. Um, that is different, in, in my mind at least, <clears throat> excuse me, from personality disorders. Sure. The, the term has been around for decades. It was first coined officially in the 1920s. And um, we have people that we work with, we have people that we're related to that we've probably referred to as sociopaths at one time or another. Um, in its um, adjective form, it covers a very wide variety of behaviors, usually ones that we just don't like very much that mm -hmm. other people do. The term psychopath, likewise, has been around in the, the official terminology since the 1940s when a wonderful book that I would recommend just for a sort of background reading by a guy named Cleckley, The Mask of Sanity, mm -hmm. was published in which he used the term psychopathic personality. Um, I believe, like most things, um, psychopathy, sociopathy are questions of degree um, rather than kind. And um, uh, it's because there's a wide range of behaviors and there's a great question of degree and setting and intent um, and um, uh, environmental um, expectancies that it's a very tough question to answer. Sure. And part of why I was so pleased to be invited to this podcast. Oh, thanks. Well, yeah, I think uh, it, as I think about the question, obviously we'll be getting into it today. Um, when, you know, when you talk about both degrees and environment or context, uh, to me, one of the things that's really interesting is the fact that that context changes and it can change so quickly, you know, not only week to week, but 
within the same day and within minute to minute. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things we'll, we'll get to is when we hear people talk about like flipping the switch, you know, like, what does that mean? Um, and, and maybe we can even start there. Um, you know, is that, is that a skill that can be taught? Is it something that it is even a skill or is it, you know, just some kind of like innate personality, uh, driven trait? You know, which uh, switch are you um, referring to? So I think um, maybe Doug, you can chime in here. I think when when I think about people in the military talking about flipping the switch, it's kind of going from like a a calm, you know, normal society type mindset to kind of a, a hardened, uh, you know, kind of the the idea of the 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 steeled kind of getting ready for for hard things. I am not sure that. Me personally, I'm aware that there is a switch per se. Um, I think that me personally, there exists a low level abiding anger (laughs) inside of me all the time that I can mute when I deal with people that I know won't understand how to process that anger. Um, I think that the thing that really turned me on to have this conversation about like what I view as sociopathic tendencies in special operations people isn't about us having a personality disorder per se, but displaying a lot of the characteristics of a sociopath. Um, I know that when when my wife and I were first having problems relationally, uh, she would often accuse me of being a sociopath. And, you know, like when I would go to therapy, my therapist would be like, well, you don't, you're not a sociopath. You know, like, well, okay. But also if you look at the list of characteristics, right, which during the first podcast, I brought up, uh, just, you know, your garden variety, <clears throat> you know, psychology.com list, which I'm assuming Paul has in front of him. <laughs> but I mean, like signs of, of uh, antisocial personality disorder are a lack of empathy, uh, disregard for right and wrong, um, a more a more nuanced approach to how you feel about like lying, cheating, um, that if the ends justify the means you're willing to engage in a variety of, of, um, morally casual actions to accomplish the goal. Um, wit and charm as being a a tool to get your, to, to accomplish what you want to accomplish, whether that be a mission given by command or a personal goal. Um, impulsiveness, which I, I see a lot of impulsiveness in special operations guys, whether that stems from a higher propensity for, uh, ADHD, um, the kind of like, you know, impulsive behaviors that come with that or what I don't, I don't know. That's one reason why I'm really glad Paul's here to kind of talk about it. Uh, arrogance also pretty on display by most special operations guys, aggression, um, something that is absolutely at the forefront of the way a lot of guys behave, uh, operationally and in their relationships. And when you look at all of those things and you're like, man, every guy with almost no exception that I know in special operations demonstrates those characteristics on a daily basis. Where is the dividing line? We obviously go through a screening process. You know, we all have to take various tests to prove that we are not going to be the next, you know, may lie uh, incident. But at the same time, if we're demonstrating those characteristics in a broad scale in our daily lives, both in our personal and professional relationships, are we sociopaths or are we something else? Which that's kind of how, that's how the conversation first was framed. And I think that <clears throat> talking about it is, I mean, the best way to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I don't, 
I mean, obviously, being in special operations, those characteristics ha- are rewarded. Like there are positive social rewards for being that way. Um, I don't think there are many other jobs other than like being a stockbroker or, you know, being in a very competitive sales market where those characteristics are rewarded. So I think a lot of people that have those without an outlet find themselves acting out. Um, I don't know if it's because in special operations you get a pat on the back for being that way, that it's kind of an outlet or or what? Does anybody want to? Well, I think everything exists on a spectrum, right? And, and everyone exists on a spectrum. So all of those characteristics that you're talking about, whether you dial them up or whether you dial them down, is what's, I think, particularly relevant. And one of the things that, that folks like Paul screen for for us, um, you know, a propensity for violence. Okay, I, I'm not really looking for a propensity for violence. I'm looking for a willingness to execute violence in pursuit of the mission at an appropriate time and at an appropriate level. Um, you know, you referenced Milai. Well, Milai was an inappropriate response to a stimulus, which was a significant stimulus. They were taking on a lot of what we now call IEDs. They had a lot of guys wounded and killed. They had no way to fight back. And then suddenly they murdered 462 people, I think, or something along those lines. Um, that, But I think, too, that was bizarre group dynamic behavior. So maybe as we, you know, we talk about these kind of capabilities and these kind of qualities in people. It's how do you manage those qualities within a group setting without people building on one another in a way that ends up in some nightmare like like you describe. Um, you know, John has a lot of extensive experience in training people uh, and has, has either been on the operational side or in the side of training people to be on the operational side for, I don't know, 30 years now? What yep. do you think? Um, I think uh, – when we talk about flipping the switch, it really you know, comes down to a difference between a, a you know a, a surgeon and a, a guy with a chainsaw. You mm-hmm. know, um, a lot of times, you know, depending on the mission, you want uh, or you need guys to ramp up, amp up like a linebacker. You right. know, I, I don't I don't need fine motor skills. I don't need to think a whole lot. I just need to smash, and that's you know what Marine Corps infantry is for. That's what. And in a lot of cases, Rangers for that's there are times when that's what the mission requires. Mm-hmm. And for those guys, it's interesting. I've always found it if you watch folks before they go on a mission and they're you know blaring heavy metal, they're getting pumped up, they're getting ready to you know kind of try to raise the level of stimulation to where they are flipping a switch. They're uh, you know, increasing their arousal levels to a point that they're. It's going to make it easier, I think, to to override fear and stress responses and things of that nature. Whereas a lot of times in, in special operations, guys are sitting listening to you know Frank Sinatra or meditating or you know trying to keep their level of arousal low. And in order to uh, operate without flipping a switch, you have to. I mean, you're more of like a dimmer, you know, rather than sure. a, a light switch. If sure. that makes sense. No, that does make sense. Um, I think. <clears throat> Well, from my, my own personal experience, um, what I saw was that there was a that it was di- it was difficult to f- to basically find that dimmer, right? Um, you know, on the financial side, a lot of what we've seen um, in terms of like studies about people that succeed in their personalities, in terms of uh, you know in the in the trading world, are that the the, the sociopathic elements that come through in those 
those personalities or what allow people to handle risk at increasingly higher amounts without feeling any different about them. Um, and for example, you know, it's easy for most people to be like, Hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give you $10 to play this game and you get to bet and you don't really care if you win or lose. Right. Um, at a hundred dollars. Now it's like the stakes are bigger. It becomes a little bit more stressful at a thousand dollars, you know, at a million dollars or $10 million. Um, you know, it's, as that, that number increases for most people, even though the decision-making process is basically relatively the same, uh, this, the risk management becomes different. And what we've seen, or what I've seen, I should say, is that you have people that who are um, basically on a continuum maybe that's circular, that are either like, you know, very zen individuals that are somehow able to kind of like find this this place of, of tranquility and calm um, or people that just really, they just aren't affected by it. Um, and but the flip side of that is the people that aren't affected by that also tend to be people that when they go home really struggle to find empathy with their families or with friends. Um, and some of that I think also then comes out in you know, risk-taking behavior, just, you know, partying more, uh, you know, driving really fast uh, in, you know, other types of like reckless behavior. Um, and I think that whether those stereotypes are true or not, you know, you think about like the special operations community and, you know, guys that are more likely to be doing, you know, like skydiving or base jumping or, you know, those types of activities that also show what might be an outlet for like, you know, for that type of thing. Um, and when I, I guess when I think about flipping the switch, part of that for me is like what I've seen, you know, Hey, I just, you know, at the end of the day, I lost a million dollars today and now I got to go home. You know, my wife's like, you're never going to believe what Tammy and HR said, you know, and it's just like, it's really hard to give a shit about that. Right. Um, it's, without hopefully sounding too callous, um, Uh, but a lack of empathy. Exactly. Um, (laughs) or I bet you're habituated, right? You're talking about operant conditioning is really what you're talking about. And so on the wind end of that, I I hope the whole 82nd airborne doesn't want to come up here and kill me, but so the only real valid use of, of airborne school at this point, at least for basic airborne is inoculation of stress of 18 to 21 year old people very rapidly, right? Mm -hmm. Jumping out of an airplane is not natural. I don't like doing it. But they get people to jump five times at the end of three weeks, and if they're if we were efficient about it, we probably could do it at the end of one of, of five days. But uh, you, I love you, <laughs> and I love you. Yeah, go beat um, your boots. But, the parking lot is filling up with airborne. Guys. Exactly. <laughs> There's all sorts of dudes in eighty second t-shirts out there waiting to get me. But um, where you know your business inoculation of stress on the floor. I, I watch movies about you know that sort of scenario. I I have no desire to contend with that. My, my ability to deal with stress, the difference between me at, as 20-year-old officer candidate Parker and 46-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Parker is, is vastly different mm-hmm. because my dimmer switch, as John has, has laid it, has been adjusted over time and expanded, right? I've just got a sure. broader expanse of dimming. You see it in the law, too. The question becomes, how does your – what outlet do you have? For us in just – I say the military period, but, but certainly within soft – we have the team, you have the range, you have jumping, you have in the course of your business, you have some off gas. And mm-hmm. we have a very advanced at this point, and I, I'll, I'll let Paul correct me on this, or at least amplify it, uh, a very developed support structure to deal with off gas and guys and gals. 
Um, in the law, what you have is booze, right? So if you look at the legal community, they have huge drug and alcohol problems. Right. Um, I imagine it's probably the same in financials. Oh, yeah. And in the soft community. <laughs> right. I mean, there, there, there are issues with, with substance abuse. Um, in yeah, that, I, I mean, I worked with a guy that kept a handle of vodka at his desk. Um, you know, and, not just uh, to look at. He, he'd, he'd take his shirt off and drink it. No, it was always the, uh, <laughs> the question from higher ups. Who drinks half a can of Coke and puts it back in the fridge? <laughs> the guy that's got like a liter of vodka vis- visibly out. Um, but I think w- what you bring up, and I, I want to point this back to Paul, because the, the airborne thing, jump school, is, uh, is something that brought up a, an article that I read many years ago. Paul, I don't know if you'll, you'll uh, know of this study offhand, but I remember reading an article in some magazine, probably like Esquire or something like that, uh, a decade or more ago, that was about a, a study that had been done on special forces, army special forces guys. And it was uh, basically, I think they were measuring cortisol levels right before people jumped out of an airplane. And what they found was that all of the, all these special forces guys were basically lumped into two categories. One was that you had people that there were no elevated cortisol levels. Like they basically, hey, we're going to jump out of an airplane, like no different than going to walk to my car. Um, and people that saw what they were referring to as like the normal, you know, elevation of cortisol levels before you were about to do something like that. Um, the end result is that all those people jump out of the airplane, right? Um, but how do you, on both sides of that, the, how do those people develop that dimmer switch, right? Because I think that is there, I guess my question you know, to all of you guys is, do they have to go about that differently? And if so, what are the processes for those two different types of individuals. I'm not familiar with the specific study that you're talking about. I did see a study on special forces guys. We have to appreciate the the, the endocrine system is enormously complicated. Mm-hmm. Studying a single hormone in isolation is of, in my opinion, limited value. Sure. A study that I did see looking at um, stress hormones found that in the quote unquote more effective, better adjusted special forces community, not only were they producing activating hormones to be able to bring to bear all the training and uh, skills that were necessary at the drop of a hat, but they also had elevated um, uh, calming hormones. Is that the neuropeptide? Uh, I think neuropeptide Y was something I was reading about. Um, the, the the hormone that they they measured is actually it, it sounds sort of funny but it's actually called relaxin and it was discovered in 1923 and they measured so again uh, there are dozens of hormones that are all interacting with each other um i just wanted to get back for a second to the switch flipping yeah yeah the reason i asked you which switch you were referring to is that i've heard about another switch mm-hmm. and you know, the population of, of men and women that I see, of course, are coming for clinical services. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not feeling well. Mm-hmm. The switch that many of them talk about is one that's not um, voluntarily thrown. It's the switch that gets flipped when they lose one of their team and they decide to decimate a village. Mm-hmm. Anyone that crosses our paths is going to die. At the time, 
or the guy that has been scouting a you know an enemy position for hours sees movement opens up fire and realizes that that movement was non-combatants at the time it feels like the right thing to do they come to me because they begin to have felt badly about it <clears throat> it's like tony soprano going to therapy you know at a certain point you are responsible for enough deaths that it accumulates particularly when they're done in a way that violates some aspect of your moral reasoning. Mm -hmm. Sociopaths, psychopaths, true ones don't have that benchmark. Mm -hmm. They're not particularly bothered and they don't come to treatment. The only time a sociopath comes to treatment is if they've been arrested or they have been stymied in some way from the particular pursuit that they're after and feel a little down about it. Right. They don't stay though. So switch flipping is an interesting phenomenon. You'd like to feel that there is conscious control. I think that guys to be able to succeed in their professional careers and their personal lives need some kind of switch or whether it's a black and white or a dimmer. Um, and I believe that that takes a long time. It takes a degree of perspective and personal maturity to be able to self-control, self-knowledge, <laughs> self-awareness, all of the above, um, a failed relationship or two, uh, to get to that point where you can have an appreciation, empathy, the awareness and appreciation of the needs of other people in addition to your own. And one just additional thought, there is a continuum that you could refer to as a narcissistic antisocial continuum. Mm -hmm. We all have a bit of, we should at least have a bit of healthy narcissism in us. The point at which attending to our own needs begins to violate the rights of other people is when you have crossed into that next domain. There's a gray area between those two. So, right. um, Lots of interesting sure. possibilities. Yeah, the thing that interests me the most, I guess, is the ability to go from um, you know very emotionally controlled state to uh, which which I is the, connect is that state to truly controlled though, right? Like well, where you say, I think that a lot of the therapy options that Paul's talking about, people there's a, there's definitely like a there's a differentiation between when you hit that rock bottom point where like how many failed relationships is it right? Like we all know a bunch of senior SFNCOs that are like on their fifth marriage, right? Like they're still not in therapy. They're still not addressing their issues. They're still doing the same coping mechanisms in, in perpetuity. Um, I mean, all people <laughs> are in that realm, right? So like what is the self-determinate point of this quote unquote switch? Like, do we have control over the decision-making process? Um, I mean, well, do we only decide to quote-unquote flip that switch when we feel like we've lost control? I mean, at that point, do the coping mechanisms that come in, like the lowered cortisol stuff, is it because we suddenly realize? It's like jumping out of a plane. We all know, everybody who's static line jumps knows they have no control. It's like, hey, man, I hope this shoot was packed well because I'm going out no matter what. You know, like, it's going to open, and I got to reserve. Like, that's your only control but that's no control, really. Well, I'm thinking of, and we, I mentioned this on the podcast that we did previously, um, but 
you know, a guy that Brent is friends with, a special mission unit guy who told us a story about, you know, doing a, a raid on a house and there was, you know, this three-year-old boy on the floor and after killing this boy's parents, you know, this boy's crying and picking him up and, and really trying to soothe this child, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, that was the most extreme example of going from like in the mindset of executing the mission to within moments later, you know, opening uh, opening the floodgates of empathy of, you know, all right, I want to calm this child down. And because it would have been very easy, I'm sure, to just, you know, like walk out of that building, right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying, uh, you know, like shooting the child I think would be extremely disturbing, like going, you know, in that total psychopath or whatever, you know, uh, description you want to use, but it would have been very easy to just ignore that, right? So what does it take, you know, from your guys' experience to develop that type of, you know, dimmer um, that can also move that quickly, right? Yeah, I think there's, there was a guy um, who started Gunsight Rain, which used to be back in the olden days was was where everybody went for high-end training, is uh, Colonel Jeff Cooper. And he probably did more to try to understand you know, what he termed combat mindset than than probably anybody. And he it boiled down to him everything to self-confidence and control and with the ultimate, you know, being in control of the if you – want to have the ability to control your emotions, your actions, you have to have confidence in your, your training and your, your upbringing, your, your moral, uh, left and right. Um, and he, you know, continually came back to that, that, uh, if you, you know, you have confidence in your, you know, self-confidence, confidence in your training, that's going to lead to, um, eventually to control the ability to, you know, and he never referred to it as a as a switch, really. But he mm-hmm. did say that it's you know something along the lines of it's essential for the man that wears the gun to know that to not come into a situation and, and say you know oh my god you know things are about to go to hell, but rather you know I've I've trained for this, I've prepared for this, and and now going into this this situation, I am able to regulate my emotions. Sure, basically regulate well, my response. It's bandwidth. It's that's wasted. Too. And I think that everybody who's been in the situation knows like your first gunfight, everything is like so fresh and like everything stands out. And then you think about the 20 that came after that. And I can't pick an individual moment, but I still remember my first gunfight, like every little detail and mistake to a T. But I mean, my training has developed over the years after that, like not based on the first gunfight, but like, what do I need to get good at? I, but it's a bandwidth thing too, where it's like, Hey, I realize that being stressed out right now provides no intrinsic value to my ability to survive in this situation. But I think that a more useful conversation for us removed from the stress of a gunfight or, uh, you know, any sort of great stress is how does this affect our personal lives outside of that my that that small microcosm of our lives like yeah man we all define ourselves on the gunfights and the high stress trades and whatever else like that's what we do but that is like less than one percent of our actual lives and the rest of our lives are us trying to figure out what how to apply ourselves into a meaningful existence that that makes use of those skills but also doesn't use them in an abusive way. Does so that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I think you're talking the two important sides of the coin, right? And they're, they are not two coins 
uh, two sides of the coin that uh, obviate one another, but they definitely impact one another. So on the one hand, we're talking about how do you employ these skills, these capabilities under the requirements that are placed on you by combat. And so in that instance, you know, there was an article I read years ago that was called The Useful Psychopath, and it was by a doctor who said, I am a psychopath, and he wrote it under a pseudonym. Here's why it is useful that I'm a psychopath. I cut people open every day. I pull their, I look at their hearts. I'm holding their lives in my hand, and my heart rate never goes up because I care about the outcome for me. I'm not particularly that worried about those people ultimately. You know, he's not mean or evil. He just is like, I, I just can't care that much. So that's one side of it. Now, I think that's a spectrum. I do not think that, that, that is the average or the mean within the military or within special operations or within the law or within the financial sector, any of the uh, you know, first responder community. Um, but we all exist on that spectrum. Well, the flip side of that, that, that what Doug brings up that is, is more and more important to me as I get closer to closer to retirement and as I've spent longer and longer you know, in low-grade conflict – is what are the impacts that you guys are talking about? What are the impacts on the family? What are the impacts on the individual? John and I were in Columbia, South Carolina last night uh, doing something you know, antithetical to what a lot of guys in our world would ever do. We went to a, a poetry and uh, fiction reading at the Museum of Art in Columbia in front of the, the biggest Jackson Pollock painting I guess he ever did. I don't know anything about Jackson Pollock, but I learned a little bit. And that discussion was still about the very things we're talking about now. Um, I don't want to go down the toxic masculinity conversation because we'd be here all day because I got a million thoughts on it. Um, although, you know, it's up to you guys. But uh, it is the the obverse of the operant conditioning coin. If mm-hmm. I've been conditioned to behave in a certain manner under high stress, some of it comes home. Now, selection leads me to finding somebody who can bring the minimum of that home. Mm-hmm. But just the other day, my wife and I were talking about this, and, and she's told me now for, well, it's been uh, fifth, uh, 14 years, you came home from your first combat deployment different. You're not bad. You're not evil. You're not a bad husband. You're not a bad father. You're good at all those things. But you are a different person than you were. Um, figuring out how to manage that. How does, she, how does she say that you're different, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I'm, she, I'm grouchier. Um, I'm a, I, I'm a little harder to, I don't, I don't think, I don't know if she'd say hard to deal with, but she's the word, she's used the word grouchy. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that's cause I don't get much sleep. Um, I'm, I'm just awake a lot. So my reserves in dealing with, oh my God, what has the eight year old done now? Um, are not where they were. Mine are pretty good cause I'm just a pretty mellow guy, you know, and it's not, she's not telling me, oh, you're mean, you're evil, you're none of that. But you're not the carefree guy that left in 2004 um, to the same extent. And, and I'm trying to figure out for really for her and for my daughter's sake and for me how to get a little bit more back to being that carefree guy. And for me, and it's, it's something, I, again, I want to write for you guys. I was taking notes while I was listening to all these guys last night. Um, it's really – it's as much a discussion about masculinity – as it is when we talk about what we're talking about here. We agree that masculinity is shaped by society, like by our surroundings, right? Like how we were raised, the figures that we had as, as children, like who we looked up to. I mean, we agree on that, right? A hundred percent. I'm just saying that, you know, we, we came here, we want to talk about sociopathy, but I think sociopathy is, is aberrant, I, I think. And Paul maybe disabused me of that notion, but I, I think 
at least in the conception that I had of it walking in this room before Paul laid it out, it was an aberrant condition. It's a guy who can turn the switch on, off. But the more I sit here and think about it, it's this spectrum that we all exist on. Mm -hmm. And the question is, where are we on the spectrum and how does that impact ourselves and the people in our lives? Right. You know, and so my question becomes, how do I train to utilize that to its maximum advantage in, in stressful environments? And how do I train to bring that back down so it doesn't come home with me? Mm -hmm. and, and the last thing I'll say on that, at least in this iteration, is a quote from a friend of mine. And we were talking about Fallujah in 04. And, you know, there's a, obviously, you know, Fallujah 04 was a rough situation. And we were talking about things he had seen there and things he had done there. And he said, look, there's me here and there's me there. And I work really, really hard to make sure that me there never comes here. How successful you are in that is a different question altogether. Mm -hmm. you know? you, I think once you cross the line, <clears throat> there are things that I've done that I'm not like proud of where I was in a moment, where I was in a heated moment. I sometimes do things I'm not proud of when I'm in a heated moment here. <laughs> you know, like I get, I get super, super mad and I immediately go to a complete lack of empathy. Like I'm going to do something that I know is going to elicit a reaction. Right. And like I... I think I did that when I was a kid. I just think I had a much more limited understanding of the scale of what that action was going to be. And I think that it's interesting to look at us when I step back and try to zoom out on what our culture does. I'll, I'll refer specifically to the Army Special Forces community where <clears throat> we, we, train and, we train guys to be good at a variety of different skills. It's a, we're kind of like a, the multi-tool of the special operations community is uh, as far as like, you know, foreign internal defense, like being able to build relationships, but also having to be good at, or having to be semi-proficient at direct action. <laughs> you know, like I'll, I'll be that like, for Jake Denman, yeah, and I'll try to be, I'm not going to belittle my ranger friends. Right. But what ends up happening in my mind is that because of the broad scale of our mission set <clears throat> and because of creep in how that encompasses our, our whole lives, we have a really kind of, um, I don't want to say it's a toxic subcurrent, but I think that a lot of the behavioral problems that we're dealing with as far as like drugs and alcohol abuse and um, infidelity, like um, failed relationships, tie back to this idea that the mission comes first and that especially within the Army SF community, there is a huge spectrum of not acceptable actions that are acceptable in the scope of accomplishing the mission. <clears throat> so like... I'm not saying that the idea of murder is okay, but there are about 50 steps up to that where guys are like encouraged tacitly to engage in those things to accomplish the mission. And it's still when people step across the line, you know, it's like, hey, man, that was wrong. But I also want to zoom out and say, you didn't just teleport to the wrong thing like there was a series of decisions that, that led you there and you didn't think that the decisions you made leading you there were wrong or aberrant based on your community like that you know the idea of you know creatively utilizing operational funds is something that is kind of ingrained at a low level from a very junior NCO all the way up to senior NCOs and breaking a team leader and understanding that is part of socialization on an ODA and then when you get to the point where you're dealing with other agencies where that is not the culture and they're like, oh, I can't believe you do that. Well, yeah, man, they give you money to do all the things that we have to we have to be creative about 
to get our mission done. They just give you that money. You don't have to make a decision about it being right or wrong. They told you, oh, you want to buy a can of paint? Here's some money to do that. For us, we got to be like, well, I bought 10 truckloads of gravel so that I can get money to buy paint. You know, like the question is, like, what is the culture that is being formed below the surface when you have a lot of innovative problem solvers who are willing to do engage in risk-taking behaviors? Um, how do you manage that? Knowing that we are looking for these kind of people or recruiting these kind of people, selecting for. Yeah. Well, there's two parts to that because that list that you read off, I mean, <clears throat> that's, you know, not far off of what we're looking for at selection. We yep. want people that are problem solvers that are uh, comfortable in ambiguous environments, people that uh, are manipulative in to a certain degree. I mean, that's that's important. I mean, in a large part, you know, part leadership is manipulation, right? It's convincing people to do what you want them to do. Exactly. And it's their things that they don't want to do, right? So in a large part, we want people on some scale to, to, you know, have those, those traits. Um, Recently, we were discussing the, our traits that we look at and integrity. Everybody wants, you know, people with integrity, but there's such a thing as too much integrity too. you know, having somebody that, that can't, you know, see. And what does integrity mean within the special operations community? Because it is a buzzword that is constantly used. And yet what I see from, from a, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, I see a bunch of people preaching integrity and encouraging a lack of integrity. Like we want to talk about being morally correct. We want to talk about making the right decisions, you know, doing the right thing when no one's looking, but we do not punish people for doing the wrong thing when no one's looking, even though everyone knows they did it. Right. We pat them on the back and give them a reward for getting something done. Yeah. Afghanistan should be under about two foot of gravel by this point. <laughs> exactly. But there, there are you know scenarios which it's, it's completely, at least tacitly understood that, you know, I can't, you know, request funds to do this. Um, and the command knows yep. that that as well. So they're, you know, essentially, you know, forcing, um, I, I know, told my, to make, I told my command that in 2011 when they were like, well, how do we solve all these bad, these, these guys are all making these bad decisions. And you're like, well, you've implemented a requirement for guys to write a mission essential letter saying why every individual line item purchase is mission essential. And when they fill that paperwork out and send it to you, you deny their request saying that it is not in fact mission essential when they're living in the middle of nowhere and like, you know, I get it. You don't want to do any major infrastructural changes. We're le- we're leaving Iraq. This is 2011, right? We're all gone. You shouldn't spend money on paint, but you got guys living in weathered bee huts that leak and, you know, have wind issues and they have subpar living conditions and they're trying to improve their fighting position, which is what they've always been taught to do. And so when you say, no, nah, man, you can't have paint then a guy will lie and cheat and steal to get the paint and everyone on his team will give him a big thumbs up. And that is the success. That is a success metric for them. They're rewarded for doing the wrong thing as opposed to command saying the operational needs of a team shouldn't be denied from the highest level up. If you're asking for something that is reasonable, even if it violates like the strategic intent of the way we spend money in this country, we should let the guys do that because it doesn't put them in that awkward position. <clears throat> to me, I guess the more global consequences of what is generally a small infraction are that, you know, <clears throat> what do you say when you look at it? I mean, I'm a part-time SF guy. My wife is very good about collating how much time I spend gone based on 
just my time in the guard, you know? And I mean, I averaged three to six months a year gone for training, mission oriented stuff. And I'm, I'm a part-time guy. Right. And if you're gone that much, like I'm not going to make excuses for bad behavior, but even the strongest relationship suffers when you're not home 50% of the time. And most of us don't have strong relationships. (laughs) And that's why I think that, you know, you might, have an avid young captain that's like, nobody's going to cheat on their wives on this team. <laughs> well, the team sergeant's like, good luck with that. You know, like these guys are never home. They don't never, they never see their significant others. And then if they're going to have a quiet, low drama relationship with somebody, I'm not getting in the way. What does that do? I mean, it creates more drama later. It's not helping. Um, you know, I, I know like the guys I talk to at the unit are all like, they double bunk. Right. I think that that does a lot to help because yet somebody else, it's, I, I talked with an old ranger sergeant major about this where he's like, yeah, the decay of the army is a hundred percent responsible on getting rid of open bay barracks for privates. And you're like, well, what do you mean by that? And he's like, open bay barracks solve all the problems because he goes, people are badly behaved. There's like 50 other dudes in there to hold them accountable. It's like, yeah, people are still going to do the wrong thing, but 50 other dudes knew that that was going on and someone's going to say something and we can correct early. He goes, now when we put two dudes in a room, you know, living together and they're both slobs, how long does it take for us to find out? We're still doing inspections, but they're covering for each other. And you know, we don't do group punishment anymore. I don't know what the culture is like when you put a bunch of guys who are comfortable living in the gray together and then tell them like you give them broad moral overarching codes that they should live by and then do nothing to enforce them. But see, that's what you just laid out. So yeah, I, I've been waiting for that entree, <laughs> right? And I'm going to give the most corporate, whatever There's going to be people out there going, Oh, you're so bill fed. Fine. I'm totally okay with that because I, and I've come to this conclusion and really in the, here in the late parts of my career, you're talking about unit discipline. You're, t- and, and we're not talking about, you know, everybody's in formation every day. And sword drills. Boot, yeah, we're not talking about <laughs> sword doing, manual. You know, uh, sword manual and <laughs> manual of arms and marching. We're talking about unit discipline, doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. Now, you look at different units. Um, if a unit has bad officers, it's probably got poor discipline. If it's got poor discipline, it's probably got bad, it's probably a bad unit. Um, more so, right, in, in a unit where your, your broader population that really runs things and makes things ha- happen every day are NCOs and staff NCOs who are on teams for years at a time. So if you have a, a guy who's a malign influence, he stays longer, right, unless you root him out. Um, if he's not a malign influence, we see, uh, you know, or I, I should say good guys who aren't a malign influence and come in, if they are heavily influenced by a charismatic guy who is – which we mostly are, right? which is what we're addressing, which, right? Which we're selecting for. So yep. we're selecting for guys who are charismatic, charming, guys who can lead other guys. You know, I the, he's got a 28-inch waist and a 42-inch chest, and I want to look like that guy and be like that guy. I wasn't gay before I met him. Right. I'm <laughs> not sure now. now. You just never know. <laughs> um, that takes things down the wrong road. And I don't care, you know, for us and our population, our population of new guys is our, our Marines with about four, three and a half, four years in. That's still really junior, especially to me now, you know, yeah. with 25 years in. Um, and, and those, I was still very impressionable at four years in. And that's, 
right when I started in, in Force Recon. And I had I was fortunate in that I had my first two platoon sergeants in the grunts and in Force Recon were incredibly squared away, you know, straight-laced guys, one who retired as a sergeant major, one who's now a Secret Service agent who did the right thing for the right reasons at the right time. And they took a whole lot of pride in them running the unit. And this is, I think, a big thing, too. Uh, about unit discipline. They didn't want me in their business. And the way they knew to keep me out of their business was never let their business become my business. Now, you can do that in one of two, or look at that in one of two ways. Either I'm going to suppress all the bad stuff, the platoon commander slash team leader, whatever, is never going to know about it, and we're just going to run it. Or I'm going to run my business so well that it never happens. And and I will say, too, another thing I've become convicted about, and this is an endemic problem to solve, is the team mentality. Right. The team is everything. And so and my loyalty to the team is everything. And we built that. That's the culture that we've developed. And so I will lie, cheat and steal to protect the team rather than I will do what is needed to protect the institution, because if the institution doesn't exist, the team won't exist any longer. And it is, but but it really does just come down to individual and unit discipline of doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason. I don't want to make excuses, sir. <laughs> However, I feel as though that so. I think that you are correct. I think that guys feel like the team is the highest level of the organization that they have any influence over and that the organization is a mindless, soulless machine that is grinding down the individuals and the team at any given chance. So it almost becomes an us versus them at every level where it's not just, hey, this is all for the team and the mission. It's, it is just for the team, but it's because every level above you is the enemy, which I see and I fight against as a senior NCO. I'm like, hey, man, you guys get it. Like, I've worked at the company. I've worked at the battalion level, and those guys are us. They are equally lost. <laughs> like, and I had to learn that lesson, too. I'm, yeah. I'm not sitting here telling you that this was a, something that I just knew in, in, intuitively or inherently. Yeah. Like when I was a young guy, I thought, well, the best way I can build my unit is to make them compete against everyone else. And everyone else is not us is bad. So let's get it on. And everyone above us is trying to hose us and everyone below us is trying to ruin our brilliant plan. Yep. And... Ultimately, I had to learn we're all just cogs in a machine. The arrogance, the arrogance part plays into play. <laughs> when we talk about building teams, uh, especially within the context of, uh, I guess, you know, the military and special operations, how do you guys in selection balance this dichotomy of selecting for individuals that are willing to operate and ha uh, have the ability to operate in this gray area, um, but aren't so far into that gray area, uh, you know, on the, on the, the sliding scale of sociopathy that they're only out for their own best interest, right? Like, you know, Paul, you mentioned before that sociopaths don't come for counseling because they don't care. They don't have the, you know, all they're out for is their, their own best interest, right? So when we talk about, hey, the team comes first and building that mentality, but also balancing that on people being in that gray area, you know, both from, you know, whether it's like psych boards or through the selection process and physical events, like how, how do you guys refine that and making sure that you're selecting people that are in that kind of that channel? Do you feel that this is the, <clears throat> in my mind, and this is actually directed more specifically at you, Paul, but I feel like 
special operations is the first place that most guys have ever been who become special operators where they're willing to subvert themselves like and their their personal pursuits for a greater pursuit. Paul, what do you think about this one? The majority of comments that I've heard from guys who have gone into special operations was that they were lured by the the romance of it. It was it was hot stuff. That's what they always wanted to do um, since they were kids. Um, Antisocial behavior, I think, ultimately comes down to us versus them. Mm-hmm. That which is accepted within the group is defined by the guidelines of the group. Um, without guidelines and consequences, you know, this is my statement about human nature, bad behavior develops. We are a tribal species. We are a violent species. Um, in a culture with no consequences, um, a wink-wink, nod-nod environment, bad things will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do happen. You know, if we take even a broader <laughs> a broader perspective, um, you know, what guides special operations is fulfilling the mission. Um, I, you know, one has to sort of accept the mission as something that is worth supporting. There are lots of people and lots of places that question the mission. There are guys who have gone through their careers and think, what the fuck? I saw my buddies killed in Afghanistan and- For what? For what? Pretty much everyone in this room is going to side with you on that. (laughs) I mean- (laughs) We went into Iraq for what? So- Again, you know, part of the appeal of the topic is you can take it as broadly. There are other countries that look at the shit that we've done over decades and think, what kind of frick-ass society is going on over there? We accept it because it's our society and it's our country and we love the country and we want to believe in it and the things that it does. And I am someone who never served, so, you know— I I feel sort of um, honored and privileged whenever my opinion is solicited by guys who have. Um, I bring, I, I think it's an advantage in many ways, if you will, an outsider's perspective when I do my work. I remember in my first weeks at MARSOC, I had a, um, a, a very, very smart, very experienced, very competent psychiatrist say to me, Paul, when you're in the room doing care, there will always be three entities here at Camp Lejeune. One is you, one is the patient, one is the Marine Corps. And it's been absolutely the case wherever I've worked in the military. One has to appreciate the context and the the norms and the rules and the mission. So it's a little bit of a free, free-floating answer there. Um, but I, I listened to when 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 Worth told me about Paul. There's a podcast about sociopathy in special forces. I was like, well, the answer is yes. <clears throat> well, of course there is. It's it's what's necessary to do the job. The job is it, 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 a mind blowing job. So, do you have to have that? Is that is that something that can be learned, or is it is it innate? You know, when you come to do this job, 
what are the personality requirements or it's both right. i think that that again we have no blood test for anything that's diagnosable in mental health it's mm -hmm. all about asking questions and um uh i don't think there's i think there's a general acceptance that other than sort of the most extreme forms of thought disorder mm -hmm. um the manifestations of behavior and personality whatever that is are both biological and environmental. Right. I think that there are the guys that are successful bring something to the table, um, but there's also an incredible amount of training and peer interaction and, and um, group learning and, and all of those things. So I, I think that um, uh, these traits are absolutely cultivated. H how can they not be? Um, yeah. The, the most successful special forces guys are smart guys. They are physically incredible guys. You have to have it all. It's the top 1%. Um, but I think that there are sacrifices that absolutely have to be made. Sure. Well, so John and Worth, I mean, from a leadership standpoint, you know, looking at assessment and selection processes, you know, how do you guys view finding you know, finding that right individual that is walking kind of that tightrope. I mean, maybe that's too narrow of a, of a channel, but as you're evaluating people, you know, people that have the ability to serve the team, but, you know, are also, you know, willing to, to compromise things when need be. I think we try to look, you know, full spectrum. So from, you know, psychological testing to, uh, you know, a lot can be viewed just through physical fitness, mm -hmm. you know, I think, uh, you know, is a guy willing to do the work necessary to put himself in a position to be prepared for, for whatever, you know, is a guy not going to quit? Um, so I think, you know, we look, uh, I think ultimately for, for somebody that falls within the left and right limits. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, tests, you know, given both uh, kind of performance type tests or physical tests, as well as, you know, written tests that try to look for outliers for the, the this is the guy that we certainly don't want. Can we, and, and because Paul's here, can we like spend a second talking about that? Like as far as testing goes, like I know that when I came through selection, I had to take uh, the MMPI, <laughs> which no one ever gave me any feedback on recently as an adult going to get diagnosed as having ADD because I feel that Adderall helps me focus on my more mundane day-to-day -day tasks that I typically have a lot of trouble focusing on. Um, I had to take the MMPI again <laughs> to make sure that I was not like a crazy outlier in a bunch of ways. And I talked to the psychiatrist about the results of that test, which I found interesting because obviously uh, while I, feel, I felt within the normal ranges you could see a noticeable uptick in kind of like manic and um, risk-taking behaviors. You were a four nine. Yeah, <laughs> is that see? There you go. So, what are you looking for in those? Like, what is it in those tests, the psych tests that are popping out that that manifest a, a, as a as a good candidate? So, you know, here's the dirty secret about psych testing for employment, which is really what we're talking about. It doesn't have a lot of validity. Frankly, I really question the utilization of psychological tests that weren't designed for the purposes that they're being used in the military. Um, I'm a clinical psych. I'm not an operational psych. We employ a lot of operational psychs who spend a lot of time doing assessment and selection. Um, I think that the more experienced they are doing it, um, 
they will use the test results as a guideline. You'd never want to rely solely on test results to make a conclusion about an individual. You wouldn't do so in a clinical setting either. Um, so I think that, you know, the MMPI is a, is a personality inventory and you're testing guys in their early 20s and making conclusions about a personality that is yet to be fully formed. When is that personality fully formed? <laughs> 42? <laughs> like, it's 60? Yeah, I'll let you know when I get I'm there. I'm still working on mine. Um, you know, I think that, that from a, from a, a neuropsychological perspective, the, the notion of an adult at 18 is um, sort of silly. Right. When we think about, think about yourselves, think about people that you've met, um, how different an early 20s person is from a late 20s person. Sure. It's enormous. The brain continues to develop into the early 20s mm -hmm. uh, in terms of full um, performance and um, maturation. Um, so personality, there are people that even question what is personality because we can act so differently in different situations. Right. We are in many ways situational beings, which in some ways, you know, I don't envy the task of people trying to choose amongst candidates to do special forces work. Uh, the stakes are so high. Um, and as I think was mentioned previously, things change in a heartbeat. These mm -hmm. are extraordinary individuals that are being tasked to do these things. So, um, uh, so I, again, please, in full disclosure, it's not my job. I don't do assessment and selection. I've done a lot of psychological testing in my career. My dissertation was on psychological testing. So I, I think I can speak about it um, as opposed to exactly how it's used in the military. But I, I'm certainly hopeful that um, uh, it can be used as part of a process of identifying outliers. But the best way to tell how someone's going to do a job is let them do the job for a while and mm -hmm. observe them. Right. John, you mentioned earlier that you thought that a lot of this came down to building confidence, right? Um, and I mean, what are the ways in which you guys are, are you know, teaching people that confidence? Um, and, you know, how do you do that in a way that doesn't veer too hard into the area of arrogance, right? Good question. I don't think we've we've uh, quite cracked the code on that yet. <laughs> but I, th I think there's there's a couple of different answers to that. One is, uh, I mean, the guys have have got to have confidence in their team. Mm -hmm. But there's, you know, like has already been mentioned, that when the that confidence becomes, you know, reliance, you know, ultimate reliance on the the team over, you know, the the higher unit to the, you know, to the Marine Corps to uh, the country, then uh, you kind of set the conditions for for uh, people that operate in the gray area to overlook you know little things, and then little things become big things, and that's where I think we've you know recently kind of across uh, special operations have seen a lot of people make what probably started out as as not uh, as bad decisions that have mm -hmm. escalated to you know catastrophic decisions. But I think uh, do you. It, it, that's a it's an interesting topic and, and a sidebar, but I know that like I have I have taken issue for some years with the command's ability to excise people, like to cut out small and irrelevant cancers that were actually symptoms of a larger disorder before like 
if DUIs are the number one indicator of a guy who's going to make bad, like catastrophically bad decisions later, we as a regiment are doing a great job getting rid of guys that have major problems or major problem potential. But it would seem that the command has a much more um, flexible attitude towards things like low level domestic violence and relationship stress and, you know, uh, prescription medications. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? But I mean, we pick on one metric to get rid of guys. And then we wonder, you know, well, we, we find out how many was it 14 dudes at dev grew who are doing meth. And like, I, I don't know what the disciplinary proceedings are with those guys, but I know it's taken over a year to get two dev grew guys who killed a Navy, uh, killed a green beret. I mean, murdered him to get, to get charges brought. And if you think about how fast you go, like I know, I mean, I know an E8 with a silver star who's one of my close personal friends who was removed from the army on a qualitative management program over a DUI that happened when he was an E6. I mean, and he was a a logical candidate for Sergeant Major. And because of a DUI, which, you know, because he had a, a Gomar in association with it, he was picked as one of the guys to get out of the service before he made E9 and you're sitting there going, this is such an illogical process from a command's perspective to say, Hey man, like we have a lot of guys shouting for help who are identifying problems. And we say, yeah, you're good, man. Just keep working. And then you have a guy who manifests that in, in a behavioral thing that could be addressed. Like, Hey man, you got a DUI. Let's, let's get you back on the path. Let's like send you to some talk therapy. Let's like, have you see a doctor before we make a quick decision about your career Um, Can we rehabilitate those guys? We I don't feel like we're asking those questions. I think that partially and I'm going to use the word conflates and I don't mean a negative implication of it. I think that conflates the vagaries or actually this wrong word, the specifics of personnel management within a large, enormous bureaucracy um, and the very real conditions that you're talking about that are the impacts of many, many years of stress and combat, et cetera. Um, so can, is a DUI potentially a manifestation of a really significant issue that we should have been paying attention to and we should have caught already and we should have, I should have actively reached out and grabbed a dude? Yes. However, comma, I have 10 E8s to make into E9s. I have nine E9 spots and I, I, I've been on a promotion board. I know how that works. Um, I've been passed four times for Colonel. I know exactly how that works. Uh, you, and it's objective. It's objective in fair in the personnel sense. Yeah, and I understand that. I, I think I'm using it more as an example of the seemingly a the se- seemingly it's like throwing darts, right? From a from a staffing standpoint, we were saying, hey man, like there are a lot of behavioral problems. Uh, I think that what's interesting, the, the most interesting to me is that even though like within USASOC, I feel like there's been there's been a half-hearted effort to push therapy or some sort of like treatment options as they're trying to destigmatize it quarter hearted. Yeah, yeah, it's fair. It's there have been videos made about it. I have had some friends that are in said videos, you know, and while the command uses those guys as object lessons, like this guy had a problem and he came and he got help and he's better now. Well, is he better? He's he's still going through a lot of stuff. Right. Um, and, And I don't see an overarching effort from command to encourage people to just talk about this stuff. You know, I mean, it's like, hey, this guy's still functional. 
Um, we have a problem with, I mean, I think that it's, it's great that general Sontag wants to talk about like reducing the dwell time, right. Or, or increasing the dwell time. Um, I think it's funny to see guys battling feelings of self-worth over that where guys are like, Oh man, we're never going to get work again. And you're like, bro, you don't need work. Like you, you need to be home more. You need, you need to, to do st- work in some other yeah, areas. You need to stop training and being gone on deployment so much. Like the idea that, I mean, the best thing that could happen to the special forces regiment would be returning to episodic missions in Africa. And yet when that's something that's talked about, guys are like, Oh my God, we'll never have any work again. I'm like, you fucking hated Africa, man. Like all you complained about was you didn't get to eat right. You didn't sleep right. Exposures. Like how great would it be to, instead of being there nine months out of the year, you're there for three months every third year. Like that sounds awesome. But guys are, you know, guys are conflicted about that. And rather than like, doing doing things where you're like hey man you went on a deployment you we're not we're gonna finger drill it you're gonna do a post-deployment health assessment and you're gonna talk they're gonna ask you 10 rote questions about have you thought about killing yourself in the last 10 days or you know hurting other people instead of being like hey man you just got back from a deployment here's 10 mandatory theory sessions you have to go to you have to sit down and talk like when we talked about Tony Soprano earlier, I don't think Tony Soprano went to therapy because he killed too many people and he felt bad about it. I think Tony Soprano went to therapy because he suddenly realized how little control he had over his life in general. Like his family wasn't doing anything he wanted him to do. They were beating him up for not being enough. Uh, the people that he worked with were constantly failing him and he had no control over that. And no matter how squared away Tony Soprano was, the only capable person in that whole show <laughs> it was Tony Soprano. He couldn't do enough by himself to affect the circumstances in his life. So like because that because that lack of control, it's like when we have dreams about like I'm I'm in a car and the car's flying and how the fuck am I gonna land this car? Well, you're not gonna land the car, man. The car's the car's flying. It's going to crash. Um, you know, that lack of control is what drives people to talk about their problems or saying, Hey, why do I feel like I don't have any control? but we don't have any implements in place to tell guys it's normal to have those dreams, to feel like that and say, Hey, just go talk to somebody and you'll feel better about it. Uh, guys, guys think that if they go to therapy, that they're going to be, they're going to be stigmatized. They may lose access to their personal firearms. You know I mean? Like sure. The list goes on and on. Yeah. And so, I mean, I want to like speaking to the guys who are in the community, who want to be in the community, who have been in the community, who are listening to this, you know, I want to, really emphasize and this is everybody's I'm gonna sound super hippie but you know <laughs> on a personal journey or whatever like my I got this new philosophy and it's only come to me in the last couple of weeks and I'm I'm actively implementing this thing which is um rather than not than trying to not put anything negative in the world I'm trying to put one positive thing in the world every day Mm-hmm. And if that means that I tell somebody I think they're awesome at their job, or if it means I call and I check on a guy, or I am more open to my wife and saying, hey, wow, you did great at that, and I was kind of jacked up and I apologize, whatever it is, something good into the world. But the other part of that, and we, I talked about this the last time I was here, I talked about it last night at dinner uh, with the folks we were with, um, and I got it all from, from David Joy, who I always give credit to, you know, when I told him I wanted to write... He said, okay, you want to be an artist, you got to be fearless and vulnerable. And I talked about this the last time, right? Fearless is really super easy for us. We train to fearless all the time, or at least we fake it till we make it. Uh, Ain't that the truth? Right? <laughs> um, I mean, and so uh, vulnerable is the hard part. 
vulnerable is the scary part. But what I have found is as I've started implementing that, like the response people have is very, very different. And and, and it's probably the anti- antithetical stance to sociopathy, right? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to go the exact opposite way now. So I'm totally willing to sit here and say in front of however many, I hope thousands of people that will ultimately listen to this, I have been scared. I still rucked up and did what I needed to do, but I was scared at the time. I'm cool with saying that. I'm cool with saying, you know, like, hey, I love my wife. My kid can make me cry sometimes. I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, why what's good about poetry, which is something I never in my life would have thought I would do. Like, It's a good way to express yourself. Yeah, right? I mean, it is. <laughs> and, and so, like, taking all this stuff, but it goes back to something that Brian said the last time we talked too, right? The mastery of your emotions, which a sociopath probably doesn't do because they're not particularly concerned about them. I mean, do they even have emotions to master? Yeah, I don't know. And, and I'll, I'll ask Paul that. But the mastery is emotions. To me, that's that's tough guy. Like, I'm, I'm going to get the job done. I'm always going to get the job done. I may have to suppress something for a minute, but instead of suppressing it forever, I'm going to go talk to Paul about it. Right. And I mean, I, can, I, I could name at least three general officers right now who've been very open about the fact that they had to go to uh, therapy, both for their family's sake and for their own sake. And I'm talking four-star, three-star, two-star guys who have been in this thing now for, you know, 18 years and some very high-level staff non-commissioned officers. And frankly, I put their opinion much higher uh, than, than I do. a lowly enlisted guy? No, than, than an officer. With you. I know you are. <laughs> but I, I, I'm talking about the, the CSMs and the master sergeants and the marine sergeants major and master gunnery sergeants. Why? Because the, my friends that are E8s and E9s now were privates, PFCs, Lance Corporals, Spec 4s, and E5 sergeants 18 years ago. So, like, a reason I care so much what Jake Denman thinks about things I write, if it's relevant to combat, is because Jake Denman spent 54 months in Iraq and Afghanistan. And if those guys can speak honestly about their experiences, there is no reason in the world that we ought to have this dysfunctional, sociopathic, dysfunctional veteran crowd out there, you know, doing this whole thing about how they're so wounded after one deployment to Kuwait because it's cool to be wounded. It's okay to be wounded. It's not okay to sit around on it. Mm-hmm. You know. So there's my plug for mental health. Well, that. Uh, but the thing is, like you're saying, at the team level, I mean, we can require guys to go to ten therapy sessions, and they're going to bitch and moan about it. And no, they'll, uh, they'll hate it. They it, will. They will hate and it. And maybe they'll they'll benefit from it. Maybe they they won't. But if at the team level, guys talk like that, that hey, you know, that's uh, you know, I'm not going to you know cover up for you. you yeah, know, I'm. You know, you need to get some fucking help, dude. Um, you need to talk to somebody. You can you can talk to me, and it happens. From I think time to time we tend to default to uh, well, let's go get a beer, which turns into ten beers. True. Which I mean, even the guys that's I know a great that, point. guys that know that's not the right answer, right? Like they're like, hey man, you're depressed. Let's go consume a copious amount of depressants, and like that's the culture. Right. And True. we may, the guy may feel better while he's having this conversation. He becomes closer to you as a, I mean, your relationship is solidified, but the problem relationships in his life, when he wakes up the next day, those depressants are still coursing through his body and he feels worse about the situation at hand than he did before you talk to him. It's like, you're not even helping the guy because you're not having like a rational grounded depressant free conversation. The, you're the, just, the culture is we take care of our own 
The culture is we don't make time away from training schedules for guys to get certain aspects of medical care. It wouldn't take 10 sessions. Three would be plenty. Um, when I was at MARSAC, I had floated the idea, anyone with four deployments just needs to go. There's no choice. If there's no choice, there's no stigma. The stigma is a huge part. Um, if it were required, and I think that, yes, an aspect of sociopathy is the extinguishing of emotions, but so is compartmentalization. Yes. Big term around the military. It's a euphemism for I don't think about those things because I don't know how to fucking handle them. And I'm a pussy if I even mention that I am trying to do it. I think that achieving a greater balance with emotions is a key part of being healthy in general, not just a healthy soft guy. Um, I think that being more self-aware would make better soldiers, better Marines, not worse ones. But sometimes you need some help to do that if you don't know how, if the culture doesn't support that. So go in, have a chat with someone about, you know, what's the deal with your nightmares? You know, are you continuing to think about, you know, the guy you had to cut in half with the 50 cal because you had to. That was just part of what you had to do. It's all right. I think it's funny, too, because I, I think that like I think we expect that those are the issues that that come up. But I think that the issues that really bother guys may be way more mundane than that. You know, like sure. those things, like while they seem very stressful to people who haven't had to do them as someone who's had to do those things, I don't I I don't have a single nightmare about those things. <laughs> I have nightmares about a whole lot of other things, <laughs> you know, like that don't really have to do with combat or anything like that. There are areas where like. I think in, in 09, I gave up having any control over my life. Like at that point, I was like, I'm going to die. Like it's going to happen. I don't have any control over that. I can only do my job as well as I can do it. And I didn't have any stress about it from that day forward. But there are a lot of other things that you worry about in life. Like I think, that, I think everybody who's ever had kids worries about how are the things that I inherited from my parents going to trickle down to my kids? And do I have any control over that? I watch them wrecking their lives and I want to stop them from doing that, but I can't, <laughs> you know, like how do you deal with that? How is being gone affect my relationship with my significant other, with my kids, whatever. And guys don't talk about that with each other because you know, they just want to, I mean, for better or worse, it's like the Instagram effect. You want people to see that you have a happy family you, you know, your kids You're curating you. your life, yeah, yeah, which is, is horse shit. And we do that professionally, even outside of the, the Instagram effect, yep. which is a great way to call it. But we did it before, I mean, I was in the Marine Corps before there was ever social media and you're not going to tell anybody that you're having problems with this, that, or the other thing other than, yeah, my wife, uh. well, the bitch went crazy. Right. <laughs> right. That's, that's the, the the sum total of it. And you want to go like, oh, really? She's she's to blame here for the three kids that you leave her with every time you deploy and the fact that you make $60,000 a year and you spend $70,000 and you drive an F-450. I got it. It's her fault. So that's an issue. Um, to me, there's an accumulation effect. And, uh, you know, I got a, a piece of writing coming out on this or at least that touches on this uh, in a few months. And I'll go ahead and preview it. And I'll say, like, I said in 2004, which was the 2004 and five were the height of my violent experiences. Since then, 2010, 2013, 14, 
had been staff deployments. Maybe there was some rocket fire. Maybe there was some mortar fire. But there was I was rarely concerned for my own safety. Um, impacted by the death of others, certainly. Impacted by the pain of others, certainly. But me personally, not much in the way of that. But I remember saying in 04, like, man, one of these days, I'm going to just have a day where I'm just going to come unglued. This has to happen. And not because I felt that at the time, but because I just figured that made sense from a mental health standpoint, that there is a dividend to pay on all the stuff that I'm doing right now. I've seen it. (laughs) It it happened to me two years ago. And it happened when my dog died. And that's what, what it took. And I knew I took the day off from work because I was like, this is going to be really hard when we, we put him down. I'm going to have a hard, hard time with this. I had no idea. I came absolutely unglued. And I have seen guys die and I have seen guys be horribly mangled. And I have seen a lot of things that, where I was like, oh, that's really rough. We got to move on and get the job done. And then it was my yellow lab lying on the floor in the living room as they injected him with sodium pentothal and whatever else. Did, uh, he, did he tell the truth? <laughs> well, I mean, he... he, he Daddy did terrible things to me. <laughs> yeah. He breathed his last. And I, I mean, I could not stand. And I spent the rest of the day effectively incapacitated. And my wife was the strong one. Because she's like, I knew you were going to need this. You know, I knew this was going to be what was going to knock the cork off the bottle. And there you go. I had to off gas after... I was 16 after 12 years. Um, That exists for everybody. Now, the question then comes down to, and I heard somebody else talk about, I've called it the vessel theory for years, um, and this does touch back to, I guess, sociopaths, and the sociopath has an infinite vessel. Paul may have a five-gallon barrel. I may have a shot glass. We don't know. It's what you're born with. It's what's, and eventually it overflows, and that's when you figure it out. It's why I'm not critical of people that, see a Kuwait deployment as stressful anymore. No, not like, at all. I'll still joke about Kuwait not being a deployment, yeah, but at the same meme. time when yeah, when guys are like, you know, telling me about all of their their PTS issues or whatever and you're like, "Bro, you literally like heard about a rocket 10 miles away and it triggered you like it used to bother me. Now I'm like, man, you just got a shot glass, bro. You just got a shot glass. <laughs> you know, like I get it. And it's also talking about that accumulated effect. So, as I said, 0405 a lot of violence, either directly involved or it was just peripheral. I mean, it was all over the country. It was Fallujah. It was Huseba. It was all these places where bad things were happening all the time. And then 2010, I was at Bagram. And nothing has about, happens bad at Bagram unless you you know lose salsa night. And get, get chased to your compound by angry MPs because you're not right. wearing your PT belt. Exactly. I mean, but I remember the first morning I was there, I did not understand the difference between 0405 and now 2010 in my B-Hut in Bagram. And I slept by the road, and there was a spot where trucks would drive by and hit this dip in the road. And the tailgate would on these bongo trucks would slam. It, would go, it sounds just like a mortar impact. So I come flying out of my bed. I go sprinting out of the B-Hut, and I'm don't, under— Don't say you were going to the— Protective barriers. Oh, I, I went to the protective barriers. God damn barrier. it. I'm losing respect for so, you. <laughs> well, I was like, well, my previous experience with mortars was being bracketed by them and watching them blow up on the I other will, side of I it. will lay in my bed and let those mortars hit me. I refuse I refuse to credit their ability to put mortars on. <laughs> <laughs> Thereafter, I understood what it was because people were walking by going, why is that guy in black silkies and otherwise naked crouching <laughs> under that cement at 10 o'clock in the morning? The next deployment? What a coward. Right? That's what, that's what everyone was exactly. saying about you. That's <laughs> what I would have been saying, too. I mean, and I'm saying it now. But the next deployment, um, 
we got, you know, they always do that the Taliban are going to start their offensive on May 1st or whatever the date is of the resumption of the fighting season. And I'm laying in the bed and I hear like, boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, what is going on? And I go stick my head out the door and there's, it's kind of empty. And then it's like, boom, 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 boom. I go, it is on. <laughs> right. So I jock up and I'm like, okay, let's man the walls. I got nothing else to do. What are we going to do here? And it was some Taliban guys who'd been smart enough to fire 17 107s, like from north of the airstrip, just as an AC-130 happened to be taking off. It did not work out for them. The Seawiz <laughs> took out care of all the rockets. But, I mean, I was, let's go! I was completely amped way beyond the norm of the stimulus. I was not responding. It wasn't inappropriate, right? I'm a Marine. I'm yeah. supposed to fight. I'm ready to fight. But my body was telling me that it was a lot more of a stimulus than it was. Um, and so that I talk about accumulated effect. And I think that's what happened, you know, in April of 2016, when I had to finally put this dog that I adored, you know, down, um, how do we, it all came out. Paul, how do we address that? Like, I don't, my mind tells me that you don't have to let the vessel fill up. Right. Like, I think whether you have a shot glass or 55 gallon drum or whatever it is, right. Like, it's not necessary that that stuff continue to build. I mean, are there healthy mechanisms that people can look to like that are preventative that allow them to kind of off gas before they reach maximum capacity or is everyone hurtling towards maximum capacity and just going to pop a pressure release valve at some point? Of course there are ways. Uh, they don't tend to be promoted in the military. Um, if people were to consider having a meditation practice, it would go a long way towards keeping whatever vessel you have at a reasonable uh, level. It would put you more in touch with where the level was in your vessel. It's just not a culture that supports um, self-awareness and, and self-insight. Um, it's all about pushing forward and moving forward. Um, I think that, um, w without a doubt, I've had a fair number of guys say, it's not the combat experiences that bother me. That's what I train for. Um, that's why I'm here. Uh, that's all good. And I accept that at face value. I also have the perspective that it's in there somewhere. And, um, uh, the idea of a violent encounter may not be necessarily the thing that gets you going, but maybe it's your dog dying or maybe it's someone cutting you off on the highway um, or maybe it's... That's, that's too close to home. There you go. <laughs> I remember someone told me a story about um, going into Dick's and asking for a fishing license and the 20-year-old behind the counter gave him a hunting license instead and he had him by the lapels and... Agreed. In retrospect, that was probably an overreaction. Was it, though? What an infraction. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. So I, I think that, um, uh, you know, young soft guys are not different in some ways than young guys, period. Um, we were all young at one time, and hopefully we, we put our arm around our younger selves, and we are forgiving and understand that we all did things that we might do differently. 
Is it cool that we do that like in our late thirties as well? It's absolutely necessary. <laughs> and and I think that that, you know, I'm also of a I have a personal philosophy that that if things were supposed to have happened some other way, they would have happened that way. So in looking back and thinking with regret, it it doesn't doesn't accomplish very much. Only to the extent that there are lessons to be learned. And hopefully there are lessons to be learned, but nothing can be changed about what's happened. So um, I think that... Um, it's very stoic. It is very stoic. All is water, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I think that uh, um, therapy can promote that process, but it's not the only way to get it. Out of curiosity, since, we, since you've brought up therapy, do you have any hints for guys on how to pick a therapist that... Like, I, I've been to a variety of therapists. I just found a therapist out of necessity recently that I finally am like, oh, this is why people go to therapy, right? Like, seven years of being in and out of therapy, like, as far as, like, marriage counseling and trying to work on, like, personal problems that have developed in my, my marriage. And all of them, I'm like, dude, people are wasting money on therapy. And I finally found this dude that kind of shits on me a little bit. And, you know, like, he's he's like... He's a, he fulfills a parental role in a lot of ways. And I'm like, oh, this guy actually gives feedback and stuff. But I don't like, I literally feel like there's a hundred therapists in a jar and you're just kind of shaking them up and like one pops out. Like how do people go looking for the right therapist? It's a great question. Uh, and the right therapist for you might not be the right therapist for, you know, the next guy. Um, if you are, if you have the, um, the choice to go outside of the military system, obviously that broadens your your pool a great deal. Um, Just so guys understand in that realm as well, like I think a lot of people say, well, the therapist that I got at one stop sucked, right? That's the only one I can get. And the reality of that is that you can go to any therapist you want. You just have to pay cash up front. And then if you get the super bill from them and file it through your TRICARE, TRICARE will reimburse you 85%. So just... If anybody's listening and they're like, oh, I don't know, I can't afford it. You're like, hey, man, if it's 15 to $20 for an hour of your time and it helps you, that's well worth it if you ask me. You know, it's 100 bucks up front, but you get most of that back. So you can go out and network for therapy just as an aside. It's great. <laughs> it's great information. And obviously, in certain communities, you're going to have a broader choice than in others. I think that um, uh, if, and I've given this advice to any number of people, um, call the state psychological association and um, ask them for suggestions. When providers register with the state psychological association, they will list specialties that they have um, and generate some names that way. Um, number one, number two, word of mouth is always a really helpful way. Um, Number three, you could fall back on getting a list of participating providers from your insurance company. Whatever the method is, usually by the end of the first meeting, you'll know if you feel comfortable with that person. Paul, what do you have to say to guys that might feel like going to therapy or you know meditation or any of these other things you know, may dull their edge, right? Um, I mean, I think some guys that I've talked to have expressed a concern that, you know, I've, I've built up this kind of, uh, you know, compartmentalization, as you mentioned before, and 
I'm worried that if I if I take that back, I won't be able to regain it, or I'll be lost in this area where I won't be able to you know control my emotions, etc. Um, one thing I wouldn't say is ah, don't worry about that. Um, I I think it's it's something that that um, uh, I mean ultimately it comes down to well, how are things working for you now? Right. Um, people go to doctors generally because something hurts and it's not getting better on its own. So when guys walk in the door, I don't need for them to be different or to do anything different. Um, I say to them, look, if you walk out the door and do everything exactly the same, you're probably going to get similar results. Therapy is a change process. So try some shit on and we'll talk about it. And, you know, one or two conversations are not going to transform you into someone different. We're going to build on what you have. We're not going to uh, replace it. It's all still going to be in there. Um, and I think that um, uh, if you allow yourself to feel more of what's inside, you will become better acquainted with who you are, which can only benefit you in whatever endeavor you're pursuing. So that's sort of a stock line. Sure. Everyone's situation is different. Um, but uh, guys have very personal and legitimate concerns that act as huge barriers yeah. many times to making that call. I, I don't have to be so kind when I get these inquiries from dudes. I get a lot of messages, just like Aaron was saying, from guys that are like, oh, yeah, I see you do, you know, meditation or whatever. And, but, you know, I'm young. I don't need that shit. You know, I don't have time for it. And my answer is always, fuck you. It's bullshit. <laughs> like legitimately, like, le like, hey, man, I'm still in the game. I'm still going on deployments. I still work. I have found that I had no idea how high the stress level was that I carried every day. And when I feel tense in my shoulders and my back and it's like just me holding on to a lot of just really negative t like tension and the idea of taking 15 minutes of my day putting on Bose headphones and focusing on breathing and going through like a guided meditation helps me release a lot of that which frees up mental bandwidth to make me better at almost everything I'm doing like I don't have to think about like I don't have to think about what all the stresses in my life are because I can deal with them in an appropriate time. And when I go into a shoot house or I'm doing a shooting competition, I'm not thinking about those things subconsciously. I can actually focus on the business at hand. And I think that guys think, well, it'll make me soft. No, man, it doesn't make you soft. You're making the same decision. Like you are choosing to be hard, to engage a target, to, to do this thing. You just are now able to download all the other things that were distracting you from doing your job to begin with. Yeah, if I would make it mandatory. I mean, if I could, I mean, yeah. I've always I've uh, practiced much more uh, you know, meditation. I, I don't take as much time to do it now as I should, but I mean, that's really like a combat multiplier. I mean, if nothing else, the ability to uh, you know reduce stress. I mean, at a at a moment's notice to, and I think that's probably a large portion of the you know the dimmer switch. You know, being able to. Uh, focus, you know, control and, and relax, you know, relax heart rate, relax your, uh, you know, slow your breathing, make better decisions under stress. Um, when you're shooting, man, like, you know what, yeah, gonna make, you're going to blast those like five meter targets super fast and you're going to have super quick splits as soon as you got to shut it down and hit the brakes to move out to a hundred meters. You know, it's like 
you got to make that transition and guys won't, especially younger guys. The younger guys are like, I don't know why I'm not hitting this target. And you're like, I know why you're not. It's because you're still on the throttle, bro. You got to hit the brakes, take a second and let it go. It's the same thing with your brain power, you know? I, I think that ties directly into, I mean, really everything that Softleet's doing um, as, as a human performance company. Um, a lot of my ideology on all of this has shifted, one, because of my friendship with Paul, two, because of my friendship with you guys, um, and three, I will once again credit Jericho Denman. Um, I, didn't know anything, <laughs> I didn't know anything about meditation, and then Jericho got into it, and he shot me an app, you know, and, and it's really easy. I just push the app and do what the app says, and I get some of the same benefits you're talking about. You start talking about therapy. Well, f- for years, I mean, when I got back from Iraq, my wife said, we got to go to marriage counseling. And not, you know, we weren't having any big dramas. It was just, let's go do some maintenance. I didn't want to go. I didn't want my name on it. I didn't want my name even on the appointment because I didn't want anybody to know that I was anywhere near that building. Um, it's an adjustment disorder or right. get over it. <laughs> and, and I was not, uh, I was just not receptive. And now I look at it and I say it to guys all the time is, hey, okay, what would you do to run faster? What would you do to lift more? What do you do to shoot straighter? When I went back to the, the schoolhouse, you know, I'm an officer. I don't get on the range nearly as much as I would like to. Um, but, you know, guys got that. What's that thing on the four stock, Doug, the triangly looking thing? Uh, an angled foregrip. Thank you. Those things are stupid and don't help you. Okay. Well, I don't know that, right? <laughs> I don't know that because I'm not on the range enough anyway. But to me, it was broom handle grip is what the last thing that I had the last time I was shooting anything regularly. And let's just pretend for a minute that Doug didn't say that. And that it was actually the most helpful thing in the world. <laughs> and my response is, what are those stupid triangles those kids are using over there these days? You would be correct. Okay. Well, good. I feel very good about myself now. Thank you for validating me. What is old is new. But- I still then go, okay, well, therapy, the thing that I'm most resistant to because or what are the implications of that? Well, what if it's actually streamlining me, making me faster, stronger, better, et cetera? Why am I not maintaining my brain, which is my most important organ, right? And I'm not in therapy, but I probably should be. We probably all should be. And not because, ooh, you probably messed up. No, because I want to take it to the next level. You know, I since I started using you know, softly programming. I am stronger. I am faster. My stamina is better. And better looking. I'm definitively better looking. <laughs> well, if, if you guys will start a therapy app, I'll get that too. Um, Maybe. I think that's the key. I, I think we have to frame me, it up that we want to be better. Their hangups are bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have, have you done uh, any like float tank work? No, never in my life. John, are you shaking I, your head that you have? Yes. Yeah, we have one right uh, right down the road in, in Sneed's Ferry. I've experimented with it a few times. I think it's it's probably good. I think it's a commitment. Yeah. And I think you need to uh, probably commit to you know, several sessions before you see results. The first one, I was I was kind of so jittery. I was worried about the time. I was trying to get max relaxation packed into my. I love I paid sixty goddamn dollars for this. You know, I want to I want to get as relaxed as possible. Yeah. But I think uh, you know, over time. You know, there would be benefits to that. I mean, it's really just a quiet place to meditate. Were you, you competing? Know? Were you trying to be the most? Relaxed? I was. I was, and I won. <laughs> the winner at meditating? Yes. Yeah. I meditated much better than anyone else in there. Yeah, they opened one up near us here, and I've really enjoyed going. Um, what do you get out of it? I think, honestly, on the very base level, it's two hours by myself without distraction. And Are you just laying there? Yeah. Dude, was it claustrophobic at first? No, I it's, didn't find it that way at all. I, no. I enjoyed it very much. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's really not, uh, 
there's almost no other time that I can think of that I get two hours by myself without distraction. Sure. Unless I'm not even sleeping. I'm usually not sleeping by myself. Right. Um, and that, yeah, it's just, uh, allows for basically self-reflection. Uh-huh. Um, I think that introspection becomes harder as we get busier. Um, I also think that, you know, one of the things that Doug mentioned before in terms of stress, stress to me is like the, the boiling water, you know, that the lobster's in or whatever, where you don't notice it building until all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's over. And, and the lobster analogy would say that it's over his death. But I think that what I found interesting when I left the financial sector was that for years, probably the last decade that I was in, it's like, man, I'm so used to doing this. It's like not a stressful job anymore. And probably a week after I left, I was like, holy fuck, man. Like I was way more smoked. stressed out than I thought I was. Yeah. You know? How um, did that manifest? I don't think that it came out in any way other than just all of a sudden feeling this like burden, you know, and relaxation. Uh, just in terms of resetting a base level, right? Like I thought the base level was, you know, at zero when in fact it really was up at, you know, 50% or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, you know, I wouldn't say that it's back down to zero. Um, nah, cause you get to work with me. Yeah, exactly. I stress you out all now, the time. Now it's back up to 75. <laughs> <laughs> it's like but, being in a, in a really bad relationship. And when it's over and you get to go home and realize you're not facing that, normal stress, that level of expectancy that was just my life. And because it was my life, I I didn't even, I couldn't afford to give it a second thought Mm -hmm. because if I did, the whole stinking thing would probably blow up. Yeah. This is too soon. Paul, thanks for coming. (laughs) Your time was appreciated. You should leave now. (laughs) I've also found in the float tank sessions that there are things that will come to my mind. One is that, uh, I am fascinated by the fact that like time, the, my sense of time is totally distorted. You know, um, most of the time if you're in there for 90 minutes, you feel like you're in there for like 10 minutes yet at the same time, is it completely dark, oh, completely yeah. dark. Yeah. Um, I, all I know is like the MRI tube where I'm just like, get this over with, get nah, this over with. It's super relaxing. Man. And think, it feels almost like you're on drugs. Cause like 45, I, I have no idea how far into it. I started to feel an odd tingle as the salt dried on my skin. Cause it's such a high brine content. But at a certain point I was like, Oh wow. feels crazy in here. Yeah. It was good. It's a good time. It's like a rave. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> someone whose name shall not be named, who's not in this room right now, said that their experience was that it was it was almost like being on DMT, which is a very potent hallucinogenic. Thank you for clarifying. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Worth yeah. is a marine; he does not understand what right. drugs are. Um, but yeah, I think the dichotomy of the fact that it feels, in some ways, like it goes very quickly, and yet. When I think back about the experience, I realized there was like a lot of, you know, uh, mental energy, you know, or things that I was thinking about compacted into that time frame um, is interesting. And the fact that my experience so far has been that I'm, there are things that I think about that I would not have thought about probably otherwise. I mean, who, who could say for sure, but. I think it's one of the um, things with meditation too, right? Is that like. The, the most important first step in meditation is people will say, why I can't focus. I get distracted. And you're like, that's kind of the point of meditation. Like you're going to be distracted, learning how to address the distraction and thinking about other things that you wouldn't typically think about is 
the process. Yeah, no, for sure. So I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I would recommend everyone. I, I have found it to be. I would also really say cool based on what we've been talking about that things like float tanks and massage therapy and those things are kind of band-aids like they'll help you release stress and help you focus but they're not actually addressing the root of what is causing you the stress necessarily so like if they're if those are routine practices that you're engaging in that help you de-stress that's great but in in my experience like unless you're addressing those things directly through therapy or like a, a guided meditation that's focused on what you view to be the problems in your life you're probably not you're probably just kind of like gently off gassing in that session and then you return right back to the stress you know like it might help you briefly but it's not actually relieving the stress longer term i don't that's just my take well i think the 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 willingness to engage in um approaches like this say something about the nature of vulnerability and the fact that i you know i'm willing to lower my guard um and allow either this person to touch me or to be in this dark tank. I mean, who the hell knows what they're going to do to me once they close those doors, um, or to sit quietly and be with one's thoughts, even just to entertain the idea that these things could be helpful, I think is a positive step. Now, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're getting beaten up at home by your crazy husband, you can go to domestic violence counseling, but that's not going to do a whole lot if you have to go back to that situation every day. So if you got a you know a horrible uh, commanding officer or a, a, a nutso master sergeant that you have to deal with every day, um, that's a tough deal. Um, but uh, I, I think that um, there uh, sometimes you know you, uh, you you do small things. Band aids were made for a reason. They help to staunch the flow of blood and um uh, eventually hopefully you get into a situation where you're not getting cut up every day paul are there any other resources that you want to share with people um before we kind of probably wrap things up here that they can go to for you know counseling or to find out more about therapy um you know if they're feeling stressed about something or just need someone to talk to or aren't even sure if they need someone to talk to um, well, I think that the um, the active duty guys have got um, a, a pretty good array mm-hmm. of, um, of potential resources, many of which I, I, I presume they know about already. Don't uh, presume too much. All right, give, give them that. Give them that line. Well, then, then um, uh, usually um, in close proximity or even embedded right in uh, battalions are military family and life counselors, MFLIX or MIFLIX, depending upon your uh, uh, branch of service. Um, they are uh, trained mental health uh, professionals. They're, they're degreed, they're licensed, and um, uh, but they are um, uh, considered non-medical providers, so there's no record uh, that's kept. Sometimes that's not a bad way to start out if guys are a little bit squeamish about uh, the notion of what's on my record. Yeah, they'll um, meet you out in town generally. I mean, they you can, can meet you out at, at the Starbucks. Exactly. Yeah. They can meet you in town. Um, sometimes they'll have offices of their own, but they can meet after hours as well, which is real nice, very flexible. Um, I have um, uh, had the privilege at, at MARSOC of, of meeting uh, one uh, chaplain in particular who was just one of the most impressive human beings I've encountered. Um, 
I don't know where Dave is these days. I think he went to school to get his master's or... Yeah, uh, no, I think he actually got assigned to a ship. Did he really? I think so. He was phenomenal, though. And in fact, just a quick shout out to this process and to these guys. Like, my whole change, my 180 on this whole issue uh, came from working with Paul and working with John down at the schoolhouse at Marsoc and... And our part of my job as the XO was was tracking people's behavioral health, their financial health, their physical health, et cetera. Um, and I had a, a really impressive team of professionals. The influx that he's talking about, financial specialists, Paul himself, the chaplains, and we'd all get around a table just like we're sitting right now, and we would go guy by guy with his his leaders. Hey, how's this guy doing? Oh, well, he's got this going on. You know, wife's just left him. He's got two kids, blah, blah, blah. Okay. On call fires, bring in the MFLEC, bring, oh, he's got a financial problem? Cool, I got a financial planner for him. Um, and and that was huge. And when I actually started seeing the benefit turn, um, it really, I mean, again, 180 is the word because I used to be a suck it up kind of guy. Um, and I have, have recognized that that is a destructive tendency and I don't say that in some new agey hippie, you know, I'm not sure about my masculinity kind of guy. I'm saying like, hey, man, I want to be better at doing all the things I want to do. And we got all these resources to support it. Let's let's whoop it on. Um, and so, again, back to Paul. But I just wanted to throw that out as a thanks. Well, it was a process at Marsac that, that unfortunately I have not found uh, over at USASOC. And I feel it's a real, um, a real detriment and, and something they come out very uh, second best at in terms of regular interdisciplinary meetings where, where things are actually talked about as opposed to sort of just summarized uh, for the CO. Um, now, and, and the other, the other, the chaplains, the MIFLICs, and, and the op psychs, the operational psychologists are all trained professionals. Um, and what they can do is, you know, they're, they're, when they're not doing ANS, uh, their doors are open. I, I know that they are more than happy to give, you know, whatever, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it takes um, to just, you know, serve as a, a release valve and maybe help assist with a, maybe with a warm handoff. Um, dude, I think that maybe this might go beyond us chatting 15 minutes every few weeks. Um, let me introduce you to one of the Clinton Sykes and they can meet with you more regularly and, um, uh, you know, start, start your care. Um, and by the way, I just want to um, uh, use this uh, forum um, for my own little personal pitch about how to think about mental health in the military. Um, if it were seen as really just the flip side of, of, of rehab, it's mental rehab, just as physical rehab is for physical injuries, you know. Um, is it possible that your injury might be so great as to interfere with your continued ability to serve? Of course it is. Uh, it's a pretty small percentage, though, because of the resources that we have and the commitment to the mission that's present um, in these in these units. Mm -hmm. All right. Fantastic. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Appreciate you joining us today, Paul, John, and Worth. You as well. Doug, always a pleasure. You don't ever have to thank me for anything. I still will. Now let's make out. To everyone out there, thank you very much for listening and joining us today. We will catch you next week.